0: Hello and welcome to the ORI Spotlight Podcast. We're talking to leaders across the cell and gene therapy industry and telling you more about ORI's mission to manufacture brighter futures. I'm Jason Foster, the CEO of ORI Biotech, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. Welcome to the ORI Spotlight Podcast. This is Jason Foster. Uh, My guest this week is Bruce Levine, who, of course, needs no introduction, certainly to the cell and gene therapy community. But for the few of you who may not know, Bruce is one of the pioneers in cell therapy, who developed what is now Kim Raya in his labs at UPenn. Uh, welcome, Bruce, and thanks for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Jason. It's great to be with you by podcast. I only wish our time to being in person come sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, can't wait to see you back in, in uh, Philadelphia at some point soon. Obviously, you're a very busy man, and you wear a lot of hats uh, these days as not only the president for ISCT, uh, the International Society of Cell and Gene Therapy. Also, you sit on the board of directors of ARM, uh, the Alliance of Regenerative Medicine. You're a scientific founder at Community and an all-around busy guy, it sounds like, as well as your role as an advisor to Ori, which is fantastic. And that all is a sideline to your main role at UPenn, which gives you a, a fantastic multitude of perspectives uh, as you look at the cell and gene therapy industry. I wanted to just start out by asking You know, what are the most exciting things that you see across the field, the most exciting developments in cell and gene therapy uh, broadly?
1: So much exciting is happening. It's hard to keep track. I I find I'm doing a lot of reading these days to keep up on the technologies, on the news, uh, what's going on in the world, but just to boil it down to a few things. Uh, in no particular order. I think what we're seeing with the evolution of gene editing, and you can pick your gene editing technology, whether it's zinc finger nucleases, uh, CRISPR-Cas, talons, meganucleases, base editing, to be able to develop all of those to make changes at will, improving on on target and reducing off target, the ability to do multiplexing, uh, multiple changes per cell. And then where is this going? Uh, I think we're looking at viral vector-free gene and cargo delivery in terms of the manufacturing, uh, shortened culture, the integration of automation. Uh, I think we're also looking in terms of when we treat these patients, having very detailed and precision correlative studies. And that will evolve into precision diagnostics uh, that allow us to determine best treatment pathways. I also think what's been underdeveloped so far is thinking of cells as drug delivery vehicles. Cells can deliver antibodies, bispecific antibodies, small Mm -hmm. molecules, and uh, I think using cells in combinations with, for example, oncolytic vectors and or vaccines. Look in the past 14 months, what's happened to RNA vaccines? (laughs) They've been in the news, haven't they? Yeah, total game changer. But not only in vaccines, I I think in complementary immunotherapy. So we've seen development of COVID-19 vaccines, but we can use RNA for cancer vaccines and, and combine them. And then Finally, looking uh, into the future, how things are going to evolve, I think over the next several years, we're going to see a very rapid increase in the development of in vivo gene therapies. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. Wow. If we had four or five hours, we could cover all those topics, an incredible amount yeah. of excitement. And what, you know, from your perspective, I, I guess to flip the question on its head, there's tons of exciting things happening. But what are the most critical things do you think as, as next steps for the industry? Obviously, we've had fantastic success clinically uh, in demonstrating the, the most recent longitudinal five-year data coming out of UPenn and, and uh, Novartis on Raya patients was incredible You know, to be celebrated. Incredible, uh, long-lasting
1: results for patients.
0: If you flip it on its head, what, what do you see as the most pressing issues for, for the industry to be addressing with all this innovation?
1: yeah so i think it is talent and expertise everyone is looking to hire and that's not only academia it's not only industry it's the regulatory bodies as Mm -hmm. well so they're looking at what's coming down the pike and and so again we can have a long list of where things are going but to be able to accelerate any field in research development You need three things. You need talent, space, and money. And (laughs) if you don't have any of those, or if you're a little short on one, your three-legged stool becomes wobbly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's money pouring in. uh, The space can be built. The talent can be trained and educated and recruited from other fields, but some of those uh, move faster than the other. And, And right now, I think... Uh, it's the talent, in, in most part, that is limiting. For sure.
0: Yeah, not enough kind of, of the highly skilled people that are need to develop these medications and deliver them to patients, for sure.
1: At Arm, we're looking at value-based payment models. These new therapies are expensive, but they do provide durable long-term benefits. So mm-hmm. how can those be financed and, and reimbursed so that Patients can be treated with these therapies and benefit from them
0: absolutely, you know the kind of market access and reimbursement issues they aren't totally new. I think you know some of the curative hepatitis C treatments we saw come in the last few years, you know maybe an analog, but the market and you know reimbursement mechanisms don't really account for cures. How do you reimburse something that has curative potential you know is a is kind of a new challenge so We've seen some some innovation there, but it sounds like in your mind there's certainly, uh, and I think we'd all agree, more work to do on enabling patient access and ensuring that the patients, you know, in all walks of life and in all geographies, can get access to these incredible therapies.
1: Yeah, there is, and we can talk about market access more broadly. Uh, these advanced therapies, I'll, I'll, I'll take the CAR T-cell therapies. Uh, because that's what I'm most most, uh, familiar with. They're developed at uh, tertiary medical centers that have experience in allogeneic transplants. So how can we get out to regional medical centers? It requires education of the clinicians and the uh, collection facilities and the infusion centers. And then in terms of having them available, in north america europe australia japan how do we get to other countries on the scientific advisory board of a company looking to bring car t-cells to india there's a center in brazil that to my knowledge is the first to be able to manufacture their own car t-cells that's in uh, ribiera de preto at penn we've been working with uh, the government of costa rica to be able to bring these therapies to Central America. So uh, we're talking about access in a number of ways. Uh, how do we expand access in the countries where these therapies are approved and how do we bring it to additional countries?
0: We were, uh, we were lucky enough to host Tom and Emily Whitehead a couple of weeks ago to have a conversation with them. And Tom was saying how he gets outreach from families all over the world and uh, very Similar circumstances as the ones you've just destri- described and trying to help them find access maybe to clinical trials or, or access to these therapies. And, you know, part of the, as you mentioned, part of the challenge is these can be very expensive therapies. And one of the mechanisms that, you know, we hope is that over time, you know, we're able to produce them more efficiently, more cost effectively, you know, higher throughput, higher quality. Uh, and that might help enable more widespread access for patients around the world and, of course, in, in the U.S. and Europe. And as you know, ORI, that's really our mission as a company, is to enable that widespread access for patients. Because, you know, it's, if we have a cure for cancer, it would be great to be able to offer it to patients earlier in the, in the treatment pathway versus having, it, having to save it to the very end.
1: And that's one of the really great things I've seen happen over the past decade is that there has been the development in academic centers there has been licensing and partnerships with industry but with money coming into the field what we've also seen is investment from tools and equipment and reagent makers and that's really facilitated and accelerated the development
0: speaking of innovation that's a topic i wanted to cover with you obviously you know, you, you, you had a key role in the development of the, of the first FDA-approved uh, CAR-T therapy, which became Kimraya. Uh, you also have a host of, I think it was 28 patents and a significant number of publications. So you're no, you're no stranger to innovation. What do you think from, from your perspective, the, you, know, you spoke a little bit about some of those enabling technologies. What are the most pressing needs around innovation right now uh, for the industry as you look at it?
1: Yeah, well, first, I'd like to say that it takes a, a large team in terms of uh, research development and conduct of clinical trials and certainly commercialization. It takes thousands of people, uh, and so I, I think we've been fortunate here at Penn to have that in our Center for Cellular Immunotherapies where we have 23 uh, research laboratories. We have the manufacturing. We have the correlative studies. We have the process development and scale up, and all of those support groups. Um, so, look, we've been able to develop, to execute, to collaborate, and to disseminate. We're looking at planting seeds in other centers and and uh, localities around the world, so that they can spring up and develop their own therapies. Uh, uh, whether it's immunotherapies or some other type of cellular or gene therapy. Mm. Uh, and and so that's part of this, uh, I think, development of a new technology. You look at automobiles, you look at cell phones, uh, you look at um, solar power. Uh, there are developments at first in a few centers, but then it's picked up and ex- it's expanded around the world.
0: Is there an innovation out there, I don't want you to give away all your secrets, but is there an innovation out there that gets you most excited about the future or the kind of near-term future of the industry?
1: Yeah, some of them we talked about uh, earlier, um, and just to expand on on that list, uh, I think it's the ability to insert um, logic-gated control in cells. um, and uh, some of the CAR T cell therapies are doing this with on off switches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can uh, tighter affinity. You can make uh, cells secrete things. And Wendell Lim, among others, has done some really great work in this uh, thinking about this logic gated control. Mm. Uh, and we're really looking at turning. Cells into mini computers, mini Pac-Man, right? Where mm-hmm. they're able to go uh, where you want to start, stop, turn left, right, and then to uh, deliver their cargo, almost, almost like drones, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, cellular drones delivering their Amazon packages.
0: <laughs> the Jeff Bezos of cell therapy. I love it. Yeah. As you well know, uh, it's been, I don't know, three or four years, I think it has, since the approval of the very first CAR-T products. You know, I get the impression from our conversations over the last couple of years, you're pretty sanguine about the, the challenges that the industry is facing as an early you know we're we're at the very tip of the spear. We're we're experiencing some of these things for the first time. What do you think is most responsible for the challenges that the industry is facing? Is it just the fact that we're early and we haven't quite learned all the lessons we need to learn yet, or are there other things we think we we should be learning to try and accelerate adoption and and access for these
1: products? Well, you have to walk before you can run, uh, and uh, I'm actually quite optimistic. Uh, we've seen uh, first approval. Of Camrya, then Yescarta, and then the development of Ticardus and Brianzi and Abecma. I think there's going to be another approval this year, another BCMA mm-hmm. CAR T. Uh, we've seen in sickle cell and and thalassemia, great progress there. Yeah, there's a little hiccup, but uh, I think that's going to be overcome, and and I think there are pathways to even more rapid development, and and once you get into these other diseases, the um, hemoglobinopathies, and then beyond there's work in autoimmune disease and potentially in other uh, diseases using CARs as well. And and uh, we're barely scratching the surface with mesenchymal stromal cells and and some other cells in development. So I'm very optimistic on where things are, are going. Uh, and I think When we look back over time, we'll say that things were very rapid. And and, Mm. uh, again, I just point to what's happened with the RNA vaccines. There are going to be more and more of those types of stories. Uh, Sure, there's going to be some detours. Sure, uh, there's going to be some dead ends. But this is, as Chris Mason has said, a new pillar of medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, And we're building it. Indeed.
0: Obviously, one of those elements, the kind of challenges with CMC manufacturing comparability have been in the news recently, again, or continue to be in the news as products progress through their life cycles and, and try and make them to market. You know, what's your thought from a, a regulatory or policy perspective, maybe from your, your seat at ISCT or ARM? You know, what do you see on the policy horizon that's important with regulators and uh, with the industry?
1: Yeah, so look, there have been some CMC challenges. Uh, Some of that has been related to the novelty of the products. Some of that, uh, as far as inspections of facilities, have been related to inability to travel during the pandemic. and, And some of it, you know, is just growing pains. And I think we'll move past that. But again, a new field, I think it's to be... Expected. Uh, so, w- what are we thinking about at IACT and ARM? Uh, I think it's uh, focusing on the translational aspects, uh, developing new therapies for patients and protecting those patients from unscrupulous bad actors. Uh, just for example, in the pandemic, uh, we've seen an explosion of development of cell therapies putatively for. COVID-19 and for acute respiratory distress syndrome. But there's also been some piggybacking Mm. on that, just like you have in in rapid development. Uh, We have, uh, over the past decade, uh, so-called stem cell therapies uh, being advertised direct to consumers. Uh, We've had gene editing under less than ethical circumstances. This is um, something that we're, thinking about in at ICT. We're also focusing very heavily on training and mentoring. We have an early stage professional committee and program of mentoring uh, that has grown in leaps and bounds year on year. Uh, we're also looking at how we collaborate with our peer societies and also being able to provide expert input to global regulatory agencies and in the, the FDA and the EU and, and globally. You mentioned some of the, the new, most newly approved products,
0: uh, Tacardis, Brionzi, and Abekma. Abekma in particular being in a new indication in, in multiple myeloma, uh, offering a new kind of hope for patients. We know that when Scott Gottlieb was commissioner, um, you know, he and Peter Marks had foretold a, a rapid pace of approvals, um, you know, 20 to 25 a year. I think they said they had hoped to achieve and Ori was there last January, January 2020 to meet with CBER and have a, a CBER uh, advanced technology team meeting. Peter was there and he had, you know, 20 odd members of CBER. I mean, it was very obvious in that discussion how passionate they are about, they can see this incredible science, you know, coming down the pike, these incredible therapies. Uh, and they wanna see ways in which they can be made available for, available for patients. Uh, and I think you know, the regulator maybe has been flexible in an unprecedented way, certainly not compromising safety and quality, but thinking outside the box about how, how to make these products uh, more widely available. And I think there's been no, no shortage of interest uh, from From the regulatory bodies and trying to to assist the industry, you know what's your what's your experience been as you as you interact with regulatory bodies and regulators, do you get that same sense that there's you know as passionate as we are about making sure that that these products reach patients?
1: Yeah, absolutely. and I, I think what what they forecast was in twenty twenty five they would see ten to fifteen approvals per year. Mm -hmm. And I think we're probably on track for that. I Mm -hmm. mean, it depends uh, how you define advanced therapies, uh, but I think we're on track for that despite the pandemic. Look, what's so fascinating, uh, and I've heard this from patients for 20 years back before we were doing CAR T cells, is uh, they feel empowered by using their own cells to treat their disease it's not a foreign toxic mm. molecule that's going to make them sick and their hair falls out and they can't get out of bed uh sure there's cytokine release syndrome that can be very serious and other potential toxicities but when you're using someone's own cells or or potentially a donor cells that it has some intrinsic attractiveness to it now Getting to your part of your question on the regulatory bodies, we do have regulatory frameworks in place. There are regulations and there are guidances. Guidances can be updated much more easily than regulations, of course, but we do see the amenability of the agency to working with the developers in ways to adapt to this new landscape because we all... Recognize that the regulations as they're written were written in the era of small molecules and and the early era of Biologics they they were not written in large part the regulations for cell and gene therapies Uh, There are a number of guidances that address cell and gene therapies, uh, but they too uh, have to be adapted as the technology changes
0: yeah, no, really interesting. Two things you referenced there. I'd just like to dig a little bit deeper on. Uh, firstly, the impact of COVID and the pandemic on the industry. You know, we hear about clinical trials having to be shut down, that kind of ob- some of the obvious impacts. Uh, from your, your point of uh, perspective, uh, where you sit in your various roles, what, what have been the impacts of, of COVID on, on the industry and on the pace of innovation?
1: Well, <laughs> Supply chain, supply chain, supply chain, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm I'm fortunate to be part of a National Science Foundation-funded consortium called CMat, Cell Manufacturing Technologies, that led has uh, been uh, led by Chris Roy at Georgia Tech. And in 2019, maybe 2018, I began working with them on supply chain modeling for cell therapies. Mm. We actually had a paper published in early. Uh, or mid 2019 before the pandemic hit and it's thinking if you're short of equipment or you're short of rooms or you're short of people or you're short of material how is that going to affect the ability for you to manufacture patient products yes and so uh, we developed a model um, and uh, there are ways to toggle this and and ways to think about priority queuing for sicker patients and and the impact of having staff out due to quarantine Uh, and it boils down to you can't think of supply chain in the way that amazon thinks or or, uh, toyota thinks of supply chain just in time right when you have uh, components that are soul sourced uh, that are perishable when you have Patients that have to be scheduled, Uh, there has to be a a lot more buffer built into the systems uh, to account for the potential for disruption in events like the pandemic.
0: Well, yeah, a forward-thinking piece of work, certainly. And I think that, you know, we've heard about shortages of those sorts of materials, and we've, in the UK here, we've lived through Brexit as well in the middle of this uh, this pandemic, which has further complicated those supply chains. The other issue you referenced, which I'd like to kind of get your opinion on, is uh, you talked about both the autologous approaches using a patient's own cells, uh, the allogeneic approaches using donor cells. Uh, You hear a little bit of the debate, whether it's one or the other. I think you and I have discussed it. Well, maybe there's an obvious situation where both coexist. I I wonder what, is it allo or auto, or do you think there's a both and uh, situation ahead of us?
1: Yeah, it's not either or. I think that's a false dichotomy that uh, autologous products have proven their efficacy and durability. A it's still early. uh, And uh, look, there's a reason that I can't give you my liver without you being on lifelong immunosuppression. The immune system has evolved over several hundred million years. uh, And except if you have an identical twin, you have to look for ways to engineer that donated product so that it is less visible. Uh, I think we're still a ways away from making donated tissue invisible. Uh, And until that happens, uh, we're looking at using allosteroneic products in certain settings. Um, And uh, there is a need for the allogeneic product, certainly in terms of thinking about cost of the uh, autologous products, uh, but the allogeneic products so far have not demonstrated to be as potent. Uh, and then lastly, for allogeneic products, the other reason there's a need is there are patients from whom we're not able to generate either enough cells or Uh, cells that are functional in the way that we expect to generate a potent product?
0: Obviously, allo is is one approach uh, to potentially, you know, bring some economies of scale to the manufacturing process, you know, serving more patients. Uh, One of the challenges with auto is obviously a single process for a single patient a truly personalized medicine and the logistics associated with that, which you referenced before, can be quite complicated and quite expensive. How do you, you know, how do you think or how do you foresee the industry addressing some of these challenges around throughput, the challenges around costs? You know, at ORE, we really hope that, you know, with our fully scaled platform is available, we could bring the prices down of the first generation CAR T's by maybe up to 90% you know, to really bring in automation so that these products can be moved earlier in the treatment pathway, addressing, you know, more patients first or second line therapy rather than, you know, last line for refractory patients. What are the, what's the low hanging fruit from your perspective on how we, we accomplish some of these goals and making accessibility uh, easier uh, for patients out there?
1: Yeah, so certainly automation is a huge part of that. We've been looking at shortening the ex vivo culture period uh, that can reduce labor, reduce reagents and materials, re- reduces facility usage. Uh, Mike Malone and Saba Gusemi uh, published in 2018, a paper on reducing uh, culture from nine days to five days, even three days. Um, and it turns out when you do that, you increase the potency on a per cell, basis. Uh, so I, I think we're going to see that. I, I actually know we're going to see that because we have clinical trials open mm-hmm. testing those approaches. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I think you're going to see more of this looking at uh, en- enhancing the efficiency uh, and shortening the ex vivo uh, culture period. And, and then uh, additionally, uh, there's some work looking at uh, in vivo gene therapy, Uh, you know, about the CRISPR therapeutics work and other developers, Uh, but there are now a number of companies looking at developing in vivo CAR um, Mm T-cells by directly delivering uh, the gene uh, through a virus or through another mechanism.
0: Makes sense. Do you think, I mean, that's you know incredibly exciting opportunity in being able to shorten the vein-to-vein time. You know, I've heard rumors of three-day CAR T processes. Even one day, I think maybe coming out of China, uh, if you're able to inf- increase the potency, uh, maybe you need less, less cells, uh, which again would shorten the vein-to-vein time.
1: On that one day, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say the challenge there is the testing and the characterization, in particular, the potency assay. Mm -hmm. And in the short term, I think three days uh, we're pretty comfortable with. uh, The gene is integrated. You can do characterization of the product, but at one day, 24 hours, Mm -hmm. you're still looking at, is that gene integrated? Is it being expressed? And then how do you, Uh, perform release testing on those cells and again the potency assay so the data I've seen is that even if you have a one day you're looking at minimum five to seven days uh, with current technology for doing the release testing so does that three day to one day really gain you much and if a patient is that sick then then maybe we have to look at treating our patients uh, two or three days earlier. Right? <laughs> yeah,
0: hopefully 48 hours isn't making a difference, but but maybe. I guess in addition to that, thought is the lo- the logistics on either end. There's there's a lot of conversation in the industry, as you well know, about centralized manufacturing versus a distributed model where you're able to manufacture closer to the patient. Do you have a thought on the evolution of that and what the maybe particular challenges are that stand in the way of being able to deliver these therapies? you know, closer to where the patient's being treated?
1: Sure. I, I think that is heavily dependent on cell type. T-cells can be cryopreserved after they're collected. The final product can be cryopreserved and they can be thawed and they're potent. Every single CAR-T product that Panner and Novartis uh, has made has been cryopreserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the final product for Yescarta and the others is cryopreserved. Yes. Uh, when you get to some of the other cells, uh, uh, NKs, uh, MSCs, uh, IPSCs, uh, some of the tissue-based product, uh, that's where the cryopreservation preservation and storage is more of an issue and where that decentralization for manufacturing makes sense. But I'll also say that there is an in-between, which is semi-centralized or distributed in terms of the collected cells. So it can be that you have decentralized collection and then regional uh, crop preservation of the collected product, then that is sent to a centralized manufacturing facility. Mm -hmm. And then the manufacturing facility will send it out to regional freezer farms. uh, Or for an aloe product manufactured centrally, certainly that makes economic sense. Mm -hmm and then sent to regional freezer farms that distribute to local hospitals. And the reason there's an incentive for centralized manufacturing is that is labor and capital intensive. So if you have manufacturing in every city, in every state, you have idle capacity, yeah, and that loses you money. Or on the flip side, you have a demand that can't be met and then you have patients that are not treated yeah the load
0: balancing you know they say there's nothing more expensive than uh uh you know so you invest a lot in a, in a facility that's full uh, but a facility that's empty is even more expensive <laughs> so yes yeah it makes sense and then you have to kind of load balance and and some sort of a i think the uk is rolling out a a regional approach where they've got seven or eight Centers of excellence across the country, and, and they kind of do a, a localized central model, um, which you know could be another way to, to approach it. Interesting thoughts, uh, though. On you know, it, it is trying to minimize ultimately the the time it takes, you know, the vein to vein time, as best we can, either through more efficient processes, fewer logistics, or other things, so that patients can get these products more quickly. Um, I wonder what uh, the as you well know uh, the last year, 2020, was the biggest investment year for cell and gene therapy ever. I think it was around $20 billion investment in the field, which is fantastic for the industry, obviously. I wonder if you had $20 billion burning a hole in your pocket, uh, what, what would you be doing with it? What would be your focus of uh, where should the industry be spending that money, in your opinion? Uh, and what fo- should the focus be for innovation of that new level of investment?
1: Yeah, if only, right? Um, (laughs) I'll split it with you. Yeah, okay. Uh, That's a good deal. Um, So what I'd be looking at, uh, and there are some models of this, is uh, regional centers of excellence uh, to expedite. Uh, And uh, there are uh, some uh, industry examples of this, uh, whether it's – Elevate Bio or Resilience. Uh, there are some investment examples of this, uh, what uh, Ari Beldegrun is looking to do in mm-hmm. investing in Boston and Philadelphia. We have uh, what I have uh, cheekily called Silicon Valley. Uh, so what I'd be looking at is investing in incubator space and training programs. Uh, and those should be located near academic centers of excellence to facilitate that transfer from the early phase trials to the later phase trials and commercialization.
0: Great. Well, you, you spent $20 billion pretty quickly there, Bruce, so we'll, we'll uh, take your lead there. Um, I think we're running pretty close to time. I one last question for you, if you don't mind pulling out your crystal ball. I'd love to have a sense from you, what, what's in store for the industry over the next five or 10 years if you were to to get into the prognostication game, Um, where do you see the industry being in kind of a 10-year time horizon?
1: I think we're going to see continued acceleration of development and uh, combinations of technologies. Uh, The uh, gene editing is going to vastly improve. The manufacturing, uh, the delivery of the cargo is going to improve. I think we're going to see continuing industry investment and and new companies, but I also think we're going to see some consolidation. And I'm going to make the analogy to the automobile industry. In 1910 and 1920 and 1921, how many automobile companies do you think there were around the world? There were dozens and dozens. And over the ensuing decades, there was some consolidation. There was General Motors and... Uh, that was parent company to uh, a number of uh, individual automobile makers. So I think we will see uh, certainly continuing innovation and development. Uh, we'll see some consolidation. That's not going to preclude new companies like Tesla or or others springing up at uh, uh, as the industry matures. Yeah.
0: Great, yeah, can't wait to see the Teslas of the cell gene therapy industry come to the fore. I know you're very active, obviously, with patients and patient organizations, given your work in clinical trials and, and your work and, and relationship with the Whitehead family. Can you reflect a little bit about kind of the most recent develops developments in the industry and how they're impacting patients? Obviously, the patients who get access to these therapies are incredibly appreciative and thankful to have that opportunity. What's your experience been working with families and and working through the process with them?
1: Well, I think that's been the most rewarding aspect of my career is seeing what we've worked on at the bench and in the labs, be able to be administered to patients and to benefit patients uh, in very significant ways. Uh, And I think one of the most powerful words in the English language is the word hope. Uh, So what we're creating, what we're developing is hope uh, for patients and families. And if we can move to develop these new therapies and benefit uh, uh, patients that would have no other options, then I think we're doing a great service to those patients, to those families, and uh, to the human family at large.
0: Absolutely. I told Tom and Emily that I read uh, Praying for Emily and uh, know you've, you've been a, a great uh, sponsor of that. And I told Tom from page 167 on, I was reading through tears, you know, just an incredibly powerful, you know, emotional story. I bought it for all of the employees at Ori and our board and our investors. I think it's a beautiful representation of why we do what we do and why those of us involved in the industry are, are so passionate about its future. Um, I think, you know, as Ori our our vision really is is and what we say is we're manufacturing brighter futures. You know, together as an industry, we're trying to bring this for patients so that people uh, like Emily can have that that fantastic outcome that you helped her achieve and such a powerful story. Uh, and as you said, so hopeful uh, for the rest of us and the rest of the industry and the patients that are that are struggling. Just wanted to say a final word of thank you uh, for for joining us. It's been fantastic to hear your perspective on these important issues and. Thank you for all of the advice and support that you've given Ori over the last several years and, and your friendship.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jason. Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity. And uh, a footnote is uh, we bought four, 400 copies of Praying for Emily ourselves, and we gave it to all the staff at our center. So if anyone uh, uh, hasn't read the book yet, uh, highly recommend it as a motivator for uh, you and your staff.
0: Absolutely, it's a must read. Thanks again, Bruce. Can't wait to see you soon and uh, stay in good health. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ori Spotlight Podcast. To keep up with the latest in cell and gene therapy and to follow us on our mission to manufacture brighter futures for patients, head to the show notes to follow us on social media or visit oribiotech.com.